and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. It started as what seemed like a whimsical trial balloon during a speech from Donald Trump. But after some early opposition, it looks like the Space Force is on its way to becoming a reality. The first new military service since the Air Force was created in 1947. Despite Trump's off-the-cuff introduction, he is far from alone, thinking that space is a critical component of U.S. national security strategy. Advocates of the Space Force argue that space has become an increasingly disordered and dangerous domain. And because the United States relies so heavily on highly vulnerable space assets for both its nuclear and conventional military forces, some believe that space is becoming an Achilles heel for the U.S. Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan argued back in April that China and Russia have weaponized space. We are not going to sit back and watch. We are going to act. On the other hand, many critics have pushed back against the increasing militarization of space and believe that the creation of the Space Force is a step in the wrong direction. Joining us today to discuss the development of and the prospects for the Space Force is Todd Harrison, a senior fellow and also the director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's start with some news. Um, let's start with Iran. Um, Trump decided, uh, you know, apparently at the very last moment to call off a strike against Iran in response to Iran's shooting down of a couple of drones. Um, and Trump said he was worried that the strike wouldn't be a proportionate response since um, the estimate he was given was that it would kill uh, 150 people. And instead, he's going to impose more economic sanctions. Um, what do we make of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, it creates an interesting dilemma uh, that we're going to face more and more as the military increasingly uses and relies upon uh, unmanned systems of various types in the air and the sea. And of course, our space systems as well are all unmanned. Uh, and as we do that, you know, it creates a, a, a dilemma uh, because an adversary may attack that platform. And what is the proportionate response to that, right? Um, a lot of times our adversaries don't have a symmetric capability. Uh, so there's not a, an equivalent Iranian drone for us to shoot down. So what do we do? We can go after the facilities on the ground that attacked our drone but that's likely gonna result in the loss of human life. And is that proportionate to the loss of an unmanned drone? This is a dilemma that's gonna keep coming up and we've gotta, I think we've gotta face it. You know, it's, it's interesting that because it does to some extent suggest that what we're talking about here is very unbalanced conflicts, right? And, and on some level, we all know that the, the national defense strategy, national security strategy, which sort of lump China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea all together, we, we, so, we know on some level that is a bit ridiculous, but this is part and parcel of that problem. This isn't Russia or China that may have comparable capabilities. This is, as you say, a country like Iran doesn't have the kind of technical capabilities for unmanned um, military missions that we do. And so it's not clear what our response should be. Yeah. And I think, you know, when all, all the concern about accidental escalation, inadvertent escalation, you know, there's been a lot of cat and mouse in the Middle East over the past few months between Iran and the US and others. And, you know, you might on the one hand think as the US, oh, drones, nobody there, low risk. And if you're Iran, it's, hey, nobody in there, no, no risk for us to shoot it down. But it's another ratchet. The question is, we don't have enough experience, though, to know how big a ratchet that is. N neither side really knows. So we're sort of in uncharted territory here. And, and we didn't even know, apparently, on our side, how we would regard this in terms of escalation. 
we're we you know we're clearly from President Trump's tweets he was figuring it out on the fly and the military when they prepared the options for him to respond apparently miscalibrated uh, to what the policymaker uh, in this case the president you know was really thinking you know also consider that the manned equivalent of this aircraft uh, roughly is a U two spy plane right now imagine if the iranians had shot down a u2 spy plane with a us air force pilot on board in international airspace um if they had done that what would trump have you know given the order to take this action bomb the sites and kill 150 people probably so i bet he would you know it's interesting too this is we we talked about this a little before the podcast but the the drone question really does have sort of escalatory and counter escalatory impacts right so on the one hand it does make policymakers perhaps less likely to respond with force if it's you know just a drone that gets shot down but i think using drones also makes us a lot more willing to do things like violate other countries' airspace mm -hmm. in ways that we perhaps wouldn't consider because if it was a U-2, we would consider the fact that there was a pilot on board and it might make us a little less willing to send it into a dangerous situation. So the, the, it goes both ways, this effect. Yeah, I think it, the use of unmanned systems of various types, including cyber, I think it makes the risk of conflict <clears throat> more likely uh, but it makes the risk of out-of-control escalation less likely, right? So it leads us to more often getting into conflicts, but it's staying at a relatively, you know, slow boil. And and I'll just toss one sort of last thought there is that this will we can circle back to that um, a little bit when we're talking about space because you know one of the things that people have proposed is you know that we establish a, a norm, a law, a treaty, whatever against attacking. Uh, assets in in space. Um, now, in the case of this drone, it was over Iranian airspace, and so the right to self defense suggests Iran can can shoot this down. But if we had stayed out of you know Iran's airspace, um, then the, you might have yet a different question. And so well, it's, the U.S. government says it was not in Iranian airspace. Not sure Iranian... I agree with the pictures. So... Clearer than that, but <laughs> yes, that is, but it was on the edge. Hypothetically, right? This is yeah. there, we we need as a as an international sort of system to develop some norms about you know how big a violation is it to go across you know the the boundaries of of Iran there you know would it have been okay and they shouldn't have been shot down if they were just sitting over the the gulf you know yeah it's a big difference I but think. i mean this and this takes us all the way back to like gary powers and the u2 shoot yeah, down sure. in the cold war right was it was it a violation that we flew over the soviet union but we were so high in the air well evidently yeah. once the soviets developed the capacity to shoot us down they did consider it a violation even if before then we thought it wasn't well and then at the same time that was going on uh, in the you know the cuban missile crisis um, you know, where we saw, you know, these overflights and everything of Cuba looking uh, at what was going on on the ground. We were also developing satellites that would go over in space and take, you know, somewhat equivalent pictures. But we clearly established a norm, and the Soviets agreed with this, that satellites can overfly anywhere on the world. And there is no, your airspace does not extend into space, right? So we already established that norm of free overflight of satellites. It's for a very practical purpose because satellites have to travel over other parts of the Earth in order to stay in orbit, right? And so space would not be usable to anyone uh, if we could not freely transit over other people's territory. So we established that norm, but then there's still this gray area of, you know, very high flying UAVs. Uh, and, you know, we're developing all sorts of technologies that can really push that limit and kind of operate in the really upper reaches of the atmosphere. 
um, and they're unmanned. And, you know, we're getting into more and more gray areas. Well, let's put a pin in this and come back to it when we talk about our main topic, because I, I think this is really interesting. Yeah, we, we hit a vein early. That's good. All right. Let's let's now for something completely different. Um, let's talk about Huawei. Um, Wall Street Journal reported earlier this week that the administration, um, which has already basically banned Huawei equipment from the US, is now considering an even broader requirement that um, all 5G cellular equipment used in the US not be designed by anyone or manufactured um, by anyone in China. Uh, prudent or provocative? I honestly don't know what to think about this. And I, I haven't known what to think about this for a long time because I see, there are clear security implications to this. There really are. But on the other hand, if we want to have a connected, diversified global economy, it's not clear to me how you make these kind of security calls without endangering that sort of economic interdependence. I mean, I, I, I think it's a really tough call and I'm not convinced the White House is making the right call by saying that civilian use has to not come from China. I mean, I, I certainly see the argument for saying, you know, nothing that's in an F-35 should ever come from China. That's a very solid argument. But if we're talking about civilian cell phone use, that's definitely a little fuzzier. Well, yeah. And I think the gray area we get into is there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of dual use systems, uh, you know, when it comes to telecom, where it can carry both military um, and commercial civilian uh, information. And so you never, you don't always know uh, the mix of traffic that's going through something. And so I think that's part of the concern here. But I got to say that if they, you know, if they're going to ratchet this up and keep putting this pressure on China to the point that, you know, a lot of the things they're talking about, it could potentially kill a company like Huawei. Uh, and you better believe the Chinese are going to respond uh, if we do that. Um, then I think they've got to do a better job of making the case to the American public of what exactly is the threat? What evidence do you have uh, that there's actually a tie here to the Chinese government, to the Chinese military, that they can or intend to use this for espionage. I think they've got to show a little more than they already have. You can't, it can't just be purely circumstantial evidence. You know, Huawei is a Chinese company, China bad, right? It, it's got to go a little deeper than that. And I don't think they've really made that public case yet. One of the more worrying things from that point of view, um, and, and this is just in my head because I just returned from two weeks in the UK, um, is that other countries aren't making the same call on this. And the United Kingdom is, is the sort of key example here. The, the government there is pushing back against the Trump administration's pressure to say no to Huawei. And so when even close US allies with, with very good military and intelligence ties, particularly in that case, in the case of the US, the UK, and they're saying, well, we have doubts that this is necessary, it does make you doubt that case. Well, and then, you know, the, the administration has ratcheted up the pressure on the UK in particular, because the UK is one of our five eyes partners where we have free total, you know, intelligence sharing with them. Uh, and they've said, if you allow Huawei into your country's networks, we will no longer share intelligence with you which is huge. <laughs> which would upset 75 years of extremely yes. close intelligence cooperation. Yeah, and so it's our closest ally. We're telling them we're not going to share intelligence with them. There better be a good reason for that. Uh, and so that, I think they need to show a little more and, and make that case publicly. And it may mean that they need to declassify some intelligence in order to make that public case. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think the other thing that's concerning for me is that I... I don't have an easy time reading the Trump administration's intentions here, whether this is primarily an economic gambit or is this mm -hmm. really 
actually a national security concern or how much of each. And the, the other thing I'm a little concerned about is, um, Todd, as, as you mentioned, you know, this one move is connected to, you know, entangled, you might say, with all of the other sort of Trump-China sort of trade battle and everything else. And, and Trump has not shown that he's particularly sort of apt at understanding if I push here, they can push back somewhere else. And, and as I understand it from reading the paper this morning, um, Xi Jinping is, is probably going to demand that Trump drop this Huawei nonsense if Trump wants to have a deal on a broader trade front. So I, this may get yeah. dropped. And then, you know, your point is, if it was that big a deal, you should never drop it. But if he's yeah. going to drop it, like, why do you get everyone so concerned? I, it's just a little baffling. Well, it works if you believe, as the White House does, that economic security is national security. I, evidently. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. And let's, uh, to end on a real happy note, let's talk about Yemen. Um, the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, one of my new favorite uh, data sets I've been looking at lately, uh, just reported that the war in Yemen has now... Um, led to almost 100,000 uh, casualties since 2015, including about 12,000 so far in 2019. Um, there was a UN ceasefire brokered in late 2018, but it's just fallen apart and things don't appear to be getting better. And um, a little earlier this week, the Houthis actually launched an attack on a civilian airport in Southern Saudi Arabia. So things aren't uh, calming down, it doesn't seem. Um, obviously the US has pretty staunchly been behind Saudi Arabia and UAE on this. Um, what now though? Well, I mean, the, the Houthi attack on the Saudi airport just brings us back to that question of sort of proportionality and what can you actually target? Because that's been the Houthi um, approach all along has been firing rockets into Saudi Arabia. Some of them do land in civilian areas, but the Houthis are operating on a very sort of asymmetric level here. It's not clear what else they could target. So this is, you know, that same problem that we already discussed. Yeah. And it's also been an interesting test case of the missile defense systems that we've sold to Saudi Arabia and how effective they have or have not been at hitting some of these Houthi rockets, uh, which, you know, I think there's there have been a few embarrassing situations where uh, you know, the, the missile batteries we've sold them have not been effective. Uh, but, you know, I look at the situation and and then I look back at the 2018 National Defense Strategy and I, I ask myself, because if you've got a defense strategy that should guide your approach to situations like this, right? Uh, I know it's a novel concept. So I, I look at that National Defense Strategy and then I think about Yemen and Saudi Arabia and I start to wonder, is this really a priority? Because the priorities in the NDS say, well, you ought to be focused on Russia and China and you know, getting back to major power competition. Um, what about helping Saudi Arabia you know, fight Yemen or, or a rebel group in Yemen? I, I don't see how that's a, a, a high priority. And you know, is that really taking away the focus from things that the NDS, the administration itself, says it should be focused on? I mean, it's it's worse than that. And I've been saying this for years, so I sound like a broken record, but it's it's worse than that. The war in Yemen is actually helping Al Qaeda get stronger inside Yemen. And so, I mean, even if we put aside the whole great power competition aspect of things, it's still counter to everything that we say in the national security strategy. But I mean, I mean, I will say with Yemen, um, this new data just suggests that the conflict is every bit as bad as we always thought it was. Um, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better anytime soon. Um, there's no political will to actually try and fix it. I mean, it's a humanitarian disaster. And so that's this is one of those situations where I think we first and foremost need to look at our other instruments of national power beyond the military. Uh, and are there other things that we could be doing to help the situation diplomatically and economically? Uh, and so, you know, that, that ought to be our first line of, of recourse. 
Yeah, I, this for me is is you know troubling in one usual respect, um, and that is that you know national defense strategies are usually creative writing projects put out for public consumption and not particularly well aligned with reality. Um, and in this case, the thing that it totally omits, more or less, um, is I think one of the core truths about American foreign policy over decades is that really our main goal is to try to run the entire world. And uh, an unnamed uh, think tanker recently uh, appeared on television and said um, that you know I Iran has this misconception that they run the Middle East instead of us. And I was like, Okay, that's peeling it back. Let's look behind the curtain. There's what a lot of people think we should really be doing, and that is controlling events in the Middle East. We should control who's the top dog in the Middle East. We should control, you know, how people live and, you know, breathe and whatever they're doing. That to me is why we're in all this trouble. We think we should help Saudi Arabia win in Yemen because we don't like Iran. But what well, this is ridiculous. All we're doing is causing misery. And uh, Todd, you're right. We should be not looking at whacking people. We should be looking at how to, you know, keep people healthy. That, that would be a much better approach. But, you know, our, our strategy documents, even going back into the Obama administration and the QDR, you know, they have been saying again and again, okay, we need to wind down some of our involvement in the Middle East. We need to deprioritize the Middle East. They keep saying that we, you know, in theory, academically, we're telling ourselves, you know, we don't need to be the boss of the Middle East. That's not you know, core security interest of the United States anymore. And, you know, it's not working. Um, we can scale back there so we can focus on other areas of the world where we may have more strategic interest at stake. Uh, we just, in practice, we're not able to extricate ourselves. Yeah, we're, we we keep saying we're gonna we're gonna get on that exercise plan and lose that weight, and we we never we're lying every single time to yeah. ourselves, right? I mean, we just <laughs> never do it. So what you're saying is we need to pivot to space. Ooh, there we I go. Like it. All right, let us do that. <laughs> let us do that. Okay, let's pivot. Um, now, before we dig in uh, um, to space force, I, I'd like to start with some general strategic background, and and I'll also just start out by pointing uh, out. Todd, that you have a, a chapter in an upcoming uh, anthology on nuclear policy uh, that our colleagues here at uh, Cato, Eric Gomez, and former colleague uh, Carolyn Dormany edited. Um, and part of our conversation uh, will dip into, into that. Just to plug that, that'll be out in July, this anthology. It's called America's Nuclear Crossroads. Ooh, chilling. Um, <laughs> and it's good. I've read it. Um, all right. So let's start with some sort of general strategic background, because I think for a lot of our listeners, um, space is the final frontier. And um, they don't know much about it, probably, from a strategic perspective. So can you just give us a little bit of a summary? What's so important about space for the U.S., um, but also such a tricky – what makes it a tricky arena to plan around? Yeah. You know, space is so important to the U.S. military in particular because we've become increasingly dependent on space for operations across the full spectrum of combat. Uh, from, you know, low-end counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations like we see continuing to go on in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan today, uh, all the way up to, you know, high-end combat with a near-peer adversary or even nuclear war. We are dependent on space systems uh, for just about everything that our military tries to do. And there's no easy replacement uh, for those capabilities provided by space uh, because, you know, we, our military and our, our national security uh, posture is based on being able to have global power, global reach uh, to be able to play an away game. And what space gives you is the ability to see far, 
to communicate farther uh, and to navigate and coordinate timing uh, over great distances. So that's what space gives you. It's hard to replicate that using systems in other domains. They just don't give you the same reach uh, that in the same coverage, global coverage that space does. Uh, and so that's why we become so dependent on it. Now, we're also very uh, dependent on space for uh, our economy. Uh, a lot of what we do, a lot of commerce today uh, derives from space capabilities, from communications to positioning and navigation and timing signals uh, that provide the backbone of a lot of our communications networks, um, you know, financial uh, transactions that are using timing signals that come from space. I mean, and there are whole uh, parts of our economy like Uber and Lyft. Uh, where they would not work without GPS. Like they are uh, totally derived from that space system. Uh, so we've got a lot at stake economically and militarily in space. The problem is that we are st have still been operating in a mindset that no one's going to touch us in space. Uh, that this is basically a sanctuary and we don't have to worry about anyone trying to interfere with our space systems. And that is just not true. Now, throughout the Cold War, the Soviets had uh, counter space systems. Uh, they developed them. They tested them. So did we. Uh, you know, the first first satellite was launched Sputnik in 1957. The first uh, counter space weapon was tested in 1959. That was a U.S. test. <laughs> the Soviets followed suit, you know, not long after that. Um, so the Soviets throughout the Cold War always had the ability to attack our satellites. Our satellites, though, during the Cold War were primarily used to support nuclear missions, to support our nuclear forces. Uh, and so we had a good understanding with the Soviets that we wouldn't attack their space systems. They wouldn't attack ours because each side would regard that as a prelude to nuclear war. Right. And so it could lead to uncontrolled nuclear escalation. So as long as nuclear deterrence held on Earth, deterrence held in space. But you fast forward to today, and that's not true anymore. First of all, it's not just us and the Soviets. <laughs> you know, you got China, uh, that's a major space power. You've got, you know, dozens of other countries that now have developed and are using military space systems. Uh, also, the threats uh, to space systems, the counter space weapons and technologies have really progressed and have proliferated. Uh, and it's not just, you know, the like a missile coming up that can blow up your satellite. That's not the only threat anymore. It's electronic threats like jamming and spoofing of signals that can render your satellite useless to you, lasing uh, that can blind imaging satellites, uh, cyber attacks that can go through the ground system to disable or destroy a satellite. We've got a whole you know, plethora of threats that we're facing. Um, and you know, it's not just Russia, it's China that's developing these counter space systems. It's Iran, it's North Korea. It's even non-state actors that we have seen using counter space weapons against us. Even in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've encountered jamming of our satellite systems. We've had uh, insurgent groups have been able to intercept some of our satellite feeds and use that data. Um, so, you know, we're facing a very complex threat environment in space and the idea of nuclear deterrence, um, you know, uh, causing someone to not want to deter someone from attacking our space systems just doesn't cut it anymore, right? Uh, it's not a credible threat. Um, so we have to develop protections, but we have not. So we've developed a big vulnerability, a big advantage from space, but a big vulnerability by not protecting it. Uh, and we see other countries, non-state actors are exploiting that vulnerability. 
So my admittedly really crude understanding of this, because I haven't studied it in any depth, was that that vulnerability was the reason why we mostly relied on sort of treaty protections um, and, and trying not to militarize space. And it sort of seems like it is the US that has, over the last three, four decades, started to shift a lot of our, our emphasis into space and in, in that we're developing military capabilities that do rely on the use of, of space. Um, and that that itself may be in violation of some of those treaties. So it seems like we may have undermined ourselves, but I, I would love to be corrected if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, so the main treaty, international treaty that we have that governs what goes on in space is the Outer Space Treaty. And there are not a lot of limitations in that treaty. Um, you can't uh, station military forces on another celestial object. You can't build a military base on the moon or an asteroid. Um, and you can't place uh, weapons of mass destruction in orbit. They can pass through space, but they cannot be in orbit. Uh, and so weapons of mass destruction, they're really just talking about nukes. And it never made any sense to base nuclear weapons in orbit um, just because of the physics of it. Uh, so that's about all that the Outer Space Treaty prohibits. Uh, now, we had agreements with uh, the Soviets, um, you know, under um, the SALT and START treaties, uh, where we said we wouldn't interfere with, these, uh, with each other's national technical means, um, you know, which refers to some of our space capabilities for things like missile warning uh, and for, you know, our, our ISR, our imagery satellites that can look and verify where their missile forces are and verify treaty compliance. Um, so, you know, we have some agreements like that, but, you know, in terms of blowing up someone's satellite, there's no international prohibition on that. Uh, in terms of jamming the signals from someone else's satellite, no, you can you can do that. You can get away with that. In terms of lasing a satellite, you can do that. In terms of a high-power microwave attack, you can do that. It's not prohibited. Um, but we've acted as if no one would want to do that to us. And so we fielded space systems. And what we have up there today are systems that were largely designed to operate in a benign environment. But what we're seeing is it's not benign anymore. Other countries are developing these counter space systems. And it's not just a threat. They're actually using them. Like we see Russia has started jamming GPS signals uh, in the Arctic region whenever we conduct NATO exercises. They do widespread uh, GPS jamming to interfere with our exercises. Uh, North Korea is constantly jamming GPS signals into South Korea. They're doing that, you know, all the time. Um, you know, we've had incidents where we believe, you know, press reports are, are saying that China uh, has lazed some of our imagery satellites. Um, you know, we don't believe it, it did any damage, but they're showing they had the capability. I mean, I can go on down the list. Um, well, this, these things are actually happening in the real world, and we've been caught flat-footed. Yeah, it sounds to me. I mean, the sort of <clears throat> space is kind of the the uh, the other global commons. And I'm, I'm, it's interesting to think about how the other sort of treaties that govern, you know, the seas and other things might be applicable. Because if you think about, you know, the oceans being sort of a pretty interesting kind of similar commons, um, you know, it's important everyone gets to use it, especially for commercial purposes. Everyone has a commercial interest in that. Most countries also have, or many countries also have a military interest in because they have a coast they need to defend. Um, but at the same time, we figured out how to let people you know, um, float their little uh, warships around too, and no one has a cow, as long as you don't use them in an inappropriate way. 
why why haven't we gotten there yet with space? Why why isn't the treaty that does law of the seas or whatever just you know we just plug and play with substitute space for sea? Well, we're still very early uh, in the space age, right? Relative, you know, to the the seas, we had hundreds of years. Uh, of folks using the seas uh, for commercial and for military purposes before these norms, these rules uh, started to evolve. And I believe the United States is still not signed on to <laughs> all of the sea. Good point. <laughs> and, and I think it's a very, you know, someone that does energy security for a living, I think it's a very questionable assumption that those treaties actually, you know, in a conflict situation would would actually hold. The, the Chinese in particular have been developing naval capabilities. Yeah, but that's really, I don't think conflict is really when you need them to hold. You, you mostly need them to hold 99% of the time. I mean, that's the most important well, time, right? In, so, in a minimum, we have norms, you know, at the yeah. sea, like in the way ships pass each other, right? And the distances that you keep from one another, um, you know, it's, it's common courtesy, right? <laughs> we have those norms that are established and 99% of the time they are followed. We don't really have that in space for the most part. There are a few places where we do, um, but we don't because it's a new environment. You got a lot of new actors that are just now getting into space. And we just don't have enough experience to have defined. Like, for instance, two satellites in space, one is approaching the other. Um, how close is too close? You know, is it five kilometers, 10 kilometers? Should the metric even be kilometers or should it be uh, the delta V, the change in velocity that you would need in order to impact the other object? Should that be the measure of getting too close, right? Um, it, it, we haven't defined this. We don't have a lot of practice. Uh, this stuff is starting to happen though, right? We see countries, you know, uh, example, the United States, we have a set of satellites called GSAP that they go around in geostationary orbit and they are essentially inspector satellites. Uh, we declassified this a few years ago. They go around and they inspect other satellites. Okay, so how close can they get? How close is too close? Well, you know, Russia has done something similar. They have this Olymp-K satellite. It's also been going around in geostationary orbit. Um, and it decided uh, a couple of years ago uh, to park itself right in between uh, in an orbital slot, right in between uh, two Intelsat commercial communication satellites. Right now, the U.S. government actually relies a lot on commercial communication satellites. The military relies a lot on them. So, you know, it's entirely possible the military was using these satellites as well. They're not purely commercial, um, but it parks itself right in between those satellites. And so Intel, uh, Intelsat, you know, raised a fuss. This is dangerous. You're getting too close. We're worried about an, you know, a collision uh, that could destroy one of our satellites. It's valuable. Um, you know, well, then, you know, the Russian satellite moved on and, and later on it went and nuzzled up close to a French Italian military satellite. And then the French protested over this. But what is the basis for protest? There's no rule. There's no norm about how close is too close. We haven't really figured that out yet. But when, when the Russians do it, we don't like it. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's sort of early days in, in figuring out what are going to be the trouble areas, what are going to be reasonable precedents to set. I mean, you know, we're going to make mistakes for probably decades, you would guess, uh, maybe longer. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of of the effort to try to figure out cyber norms and managing the internet, yeah. right? I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of people would agree that ideally the internet would be sort of this totally neutral thing that everyone gets to benefit from. But in reality, how do you get there? Not easy. And I don't think it will be easy in space mm -hmm. either. Um, so l l let's talk 
about Space Force for a minute, because if you can't figure out a, a norms and treaties, at least you can, you know, be the first with the uh, Space Force. Um, is it a good idea, Todd? Is <laughs> is a separate service a good idea? Is it necessary? What would it actually do? What what problems yeah. is Space Force going to solve? I mean, the things we've been talking about, I don't I don't smell a Space Force solution to, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. So you know, here are the the problem sets I think that a lot of people would agree to. Uh, one is we have not adequately uh, changed the type of systems that we are are buying and launching into space uh, to include all of the protections that we need to have. So we're not adequately protected. Um, that's you know an operational problem. That's an acquisition problem as well. So we've got to change what we're doing at a faster rate. Um, you know, to keep up with the threats that we see that are out there. Um, we also need more um, focus on space in terms of developing the cadre of personnel. Uh, space is not like other domains. It is different in many ways. Uh, and the way it has been managed, space operators have been managed in the military uh, because there is no service that is, you know, its priority is space, its number one job is space. Uh, it's always been a secondary or tertiary concern. Uh, and so we have not done a good job of developing a robust cadre of space leaders, of, of people that really live you know, and breathe and understand space. Take the Air Force, for example, uh, the folks who are doing the acquisition of space systems, which are not at all like airplanes. Um, <laughs> they do not fly through the air. They do not have wings. Uh, they do not have a jet engine. Um, you know, uh, the people who do acquisition for satellites, they're part of the same acquisition career field as the rest of the acquirers in the Air Force. Uh, and having worked out of the Space and Missile Systems Center where they do a lot of these space acquisitions, I can tell you the people rotating in and out of there uh, are people who often that is their first space job and probably the only space assignment they're going to have in their career. Uh, they they aren't dedicated to space. They haven't grown up in space. They don't understand a lot of the unique um, requirements of space systems, and they certainly don't understand space operations. Uh, and so that is one of the areas we're really lacking is we don't have that robust cadre of people who really understand space. Um, you know, uh, and, and so I, I think the combination of the, you know, these two problem sets leads you to, and it leads me to, maybe you need a dedicated military service um, where you have a dedicated cadre of people. If you're in the Space Force, you're going to do space your whole career. That's what you're going to do. Don't get into it if you don't want to do space, <laughs> right? Uh, and the people who come in, they're going to be dedicated to that. They'll understand that. Um, and we could, that will give us an opportunity then to change our acquisition organizations, to make them more focused on space, to make them more agile, more innovative, uh, more connected to what's going on uh, in the commercial space sector. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of opportunities there by creating your own military service, walling it off, giving it its own funding line, you know, separate from the other military services, giving it its own leadership and its own culture. Wouldn't the opposing argument to that, though, be the argument that some people have made about the Air Force, which is that because we walled off the Air Force, it has become less responsive to the needs of the other services that it is actually meant to be supporting. And so I, I know it's, a, it's an argument that's a little out there, but some people have argued that it would be better to basically break up the Air Force and return the 
the relevant divisions to the combat services that they're supporting, rather than actually having a service whose sole function is is just the, the provenance of the air. And it seems to me on the Space Force that you could achieve something like what you're talking about, trained people who focus specifically on that, but embedded within the services they're supporting. So whether that's embedded in the military, whether that's embedded with the intelligence community. Yeah. So that's kind of how we do it today, right? Space is broken up among the services. We have a lot of different um, you know, organizations. Much of it is in the Air Force, but there's a large component in the Army of space operators. They have a first space battalion um, of space operators. Uh, and what they do is they actually operate the payloads on communication satellites to support the Army. Uh, the Navy has historically had its own space acquisitions office, and they've operated their own constellation of satellites. The Army now has started operating, uh, developing and launching and operating its own constellation of satellites as well. So, Space is fragmented right now, and when it's fragmented, it's hard to have a robust uh, cadre of people because it, the pockets of people are too small to be self-sustaining uh, in each of the services, uh, and it leads to a lot of redundancy across the services and distrust. Uh, I, I would argue that what we did when we created the Air Force is we didn't go far enough. Right. We pulled the, you know, the Air Corps out of the Army, but not entirely. So the Army still has fixed wing we aircraft. Have, we have five air forces now. Yeah. I mean, right. And this is going to be true when we create Space Force. Then we're going to have a space force. It doesn't force, have to be. And we're going to have four other space forces. Well, right? it doesn't have to be. Right. And so I, I, you know, I would argue with the Air Force, we should have just said all land based fixed wing aircraft go into this service. If you need them, if you need aircraft like that, go talk to them. And the way that's supposed to happen is through the combatant commanders. Right. The combatant commanders are the ones who integrate the forces and actually use them, employ them. And so they're the ones who can say, I need this from my ground forces, I need this from my naval forces, and this is what I need from air, and this is what I need from space. Right. And they provide that demand signal to the services. The services, you know, do the organization, the training, and the equipping to provide the forces to the combatant commands. Um, so I think that's the way it should work. And if we do this right with space, we will take all of these space functions out of the other services, consolidate them in one place. Uh, I think there'll actually be some efficiencies and savings there if we do that properly, um, but consolidate them all. Uh, and then it's up to the combatant commands uh, to do that integration and say, this is what we need from space for these different types of situations. So is it Admiral Bezos or Admiral Musk who is the first leader of, of space? You know, I, I, I'm, I think the, the rank really should include like a space commodore yes. and a space marshal. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's got all sorts <laughs> of thoughts there. Okay, good. Um, all right. I, you know, there are other criticisms we could, we could potentially consider here. Um, you know, one of them is that, you know, this has some, to some people, a whiff of a, um, you know, a handout to the defense industry because it looks like you're going to start buying a lot more fun stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, is where's the real threat yet, right? I mean, you've talked about trends, but where's the fire that's going to justify spending a lot more money on space? So, the, you know, what's being proposed with creating a new service for space um, it does not necessarily mean spending more. 
It just means transferring that money, you know, so the, you know, 15 or so billion that's currently being spent in the different military services each year uh, on space, it would just be transferring that over to a different funding line under the Space Force. Uh, so it does not necessarily mean we're spending more on space. Um you know, so in terms of from a defense industry perspective, um, almost all the defense contractors have tried scrupulously to stay out of this debate um, because at the end of the day, you know, they want to be in good graces of whoever their customer is, whether it's still going to be the services or to be this new service. They want to be in good graces <laughs> with whoever it may end up be. So they're not in this debate one way or the other for good reason. Um, but, you know, once you do create a space service, uh, then you've got an advocate at the table, someone who's in charge of space, who is then going to be arguing for more resources. Right. Th but they're going to have to fight the other services to get those resources. I think that's a good fight to have, right? Um, we should be having that fight at that top level, at the OSD level. Uh, and so ultimately that comes to the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Defense every year in the budget build to do this allocation, to do the refereeing. Uh, we got a certain amount of money that the administration is allowing us to put in this budget. Um, you know, How are we gonna allocate that out? Make your case, right? Um, and so, you know, yeah, will funding go up over time? I think probably so. I think that's going to happen regardless of whether we have a space force or not, uh, because I think the threats that we're seeing to our space systems in peacetime uh, are going to compel us to spend more to improve our protections. So, you know, a, a second sort of question for me, and these aren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, mutually exclusive. I, I I worry that creating a space force, the United States creating a space force, sets a a, a precedent, potentially dangerous precedent, that's going to sort of signal to Russia and China and others, India maybe, um, that we we're intending to dominate space, and this may sort of even ratchet up further, sort of the arms race or, or the space race, whatever you want to call it, um, and sort of at the same time, I, I don't understand the total absence of efforts for arms control in space. Like it seems to me they would be at least good to do in parallel, if not a better idea to try some more arms control first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in terms of, you know, the, the language here, um, I think the, the use of the term space force uh, to some people, it conjures up something that's more offensive. Uh, I think in reality, if you look at what's going on, it's all about just defending what we've already got because we're the ones who have stuff to lose in space, right? So we just need to defend it. We want to deter conflict in space. That's a priority. Maybe a better name would be a space defense force uh, to highlight the fact that this is really defensive in nature. Um, so we'll see what they come out in Congress. <laughs> um, but, you know, other countries have already done similar reorganizations. Uh, so back in 2015, China reorganized and created what they call a strategic support force, and they put all of their space and all of their cyber forces under that new organization, right? So they've already reorganized to um, elevate space and cyber, but they did them together. In Russia, they've gone through many different reorganizations. Um, now, I, I think the latest with Russia is they have an aerospace force, and under that, there's an air force and a space force, um, which is actually kind of similar to the construct that Congress is considering right now. Under the Department of the Air Force, we would have an air force and a space force. Um, so we would not really be the first uh, to do a reorganization like this. Could it lead others to do the same? 
honestly, I'll tell you, I, I have been asked by uh, folks from other countries uh, and other militaries, allies, uh, you know, saying, hey, if you guys create a space force, you know, we like to have military to military peer to peer contacts, right? So we have the head of our Air Force talks to the head of your Air Force. Um, if you have a space force, does that mean we need a space force so that we have someone equivalent to talk to your person? Um, you know, um, so it could lead some of our, our allies to do similar reorganizations within their own countries. But the honest truth is most of our allies have, you know, few, if any, space capabilities uh, to bring to bear that would warrant um, you know, such an organizational change on their own. Uh, they primarily rely on us uh, for their space capabilities. Right. Well, I think we're running out of time a little here, but I do want to ask sort of one final question because we've been talking as if this is all reality, but you're right that Congress has not actually appropriated any money to create this force. They've not authorized the creation of this force. Are they going to? Where's this going to go? So where this stands right now, so um, back in March, the administration uh, released its legislative proposal uh, for creating a space force. Um, that went to the Hill. Um, so to authorize it, to actually create the space force, it's you know going to go through the Armed Services Committee. So um, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, they came out with their bill, uh, which I think is being taken up this week by the full Senate. Uh, and that basically says you can create a space force under the Department of the Air Force. Uh, so pretty much what the administration requested. Um, you know, they make the head of it um, a commander. They call it a commander instead of a chief of staff. Uh, but that person would, after the first year, sit on the Joint Chiefs, just like all the other heads of the services. Um, but the Senate, you know, kind of narrow, narrowly defined it and said, at least initially, it's only going to take the space components out of the Air Force. Um, it's a little you know, open as to whether or not in future years it can take you know, from the Army and the Navy as well. Uh, and it said explicitly, you can't take any of the Intel uh, space capabilities. Um, the House version of the bill, uh, what the House version does is also it's a space core that's under the Department of the Air Force, so different name. Um, it has a commandant instead of a chief of staff, <laughs> uh, and it's a little more open as to whether or not you can uh, take capabilities uh, from the other services. Uh, so it made it into both draft versions of the NDAA. Uh, so in all likelihood, when it comes out of conference committee, uh, they're going to have something in there like this. The details are probably going to be different. In terms of the appropriation of money, uh, the appropriators in the House, uh, they cut the budget uh, request for the Space Force. So in the first year, they needed, they asked for $72 million. Uh, the House uh, appropriators only gave them $15 million, but that's just for the first year. That's just during the transition stand-up period. The Senate, they have not moved yet on their appropriations bill. So it's still a TBD, but I would say at this point, it's probably 80, 90% likelihood that this does get created. And then the only real question is, what do the uniforms look like? I'm going to go for gray. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. <laughs> Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. That was a fantastic conversation. And thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to all of you for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.